Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. Hi, it's so good to see all of your faces. Callan Ardell, good to see you. Nancy, Dee, Harold, and Bridget, you guys are really featured uh, on this fellowship. It's true. We're really going to go um, spread the light that you started spreading on Yom HaShoah. Hopefully our fellowship will take it to the next level. Um, just so good to see all of your faces. So good to see you all. I was hoping that Ari would be able to join us today, but I don't see him on the Zoom. And I know that he's sort of like all over the place I'm here. right now. Oh, you are here. I'm I've here. been WhatsApping you. I've been calling you. I didn't see you. Okay, excellent that you're here. Okay, good. I didn't know. Okay, wonderful. Well, you look good. You look good. Excellent. I'm glad that you're Thank here. You. All right. So I'm going to introduce you in just a moment. I just wanted to kind of give people a bit of a background and also let people still sign in. I see a lot of people signing in right now because usually we start off um, every fellowship with a little bit of music. But right now we are in Sfirata Omer. It's the 17th day of the Omer. As soon as the stars come out, it will be the 18th day. And until Lagba Omer, until the 33rd day of the Omer, um, we try not to listen to happy music. That's like, that's what you're doing. Maybe in the background, it's not so bad. If it's helping you be prayerful, that's okay. But just like start the fellowship off with happy music. We decided just to kind of cut the music out of the fellowship. And so I see people are signing in because they're used to like that extra minute or two. And they just want to get right there for the teaching. But um, as you can see, I'm scruffy. Um, and I know that, um, you know, it's a time of mourning. So much of the Torah was lost when 24,000 of the greatest Torah scholars um, in Israel died during the Roman occupation. But I just love seeing Jews around Israel now. They're wearing suits and ties and they're all dressed up and they're fancy. And they all have like scruffy beards, like, you know, just remembering Sfirata Omer. You see it as a national reality in Israel. And, um, you know, this week we're getting ready for Yom mood. That'll be a break in the morning, a time for celebration. And this year we're celebrating 75 years. And that's just huge. You know, if only people 80 years ago would know that we would be celebrating 75 free years in the land of Israel. It's just an absolute miracle. And um, things on the farm are picking up now. That's really like what's happening. Um, it's hopping. Every day is a new adventure, another group. We just launched the first step towards our new farm. And I'm going to show you all about all of that really soon. Um, but on the farm with all that's happening, there has been someone that has been quite missed. And um, he's been through a lot. But I see him right here. He has joined us today. And so I just wanted to like hear alongside all of you for that matter. I haven't had much time with Ari because it's literally been, it felt like all of Israel was in a constant line waiting to visit the Abramowitz house. I was constant people. So I really haven't had a chance to hear from Ari almost other than the times that I was there with a bunch of other people. But here we have Ari Abramowitz to like kind of tell us where you're at, how you're doing, what's new, how you feeling. So Ari, please. Shalom, everybody. It is so good to see all of you. And uh, yes, Jeremy, it's good to see you too. You are my neighbor, but it really has been overwhelming as you know but i i also just want to thank you because the day my father passed away the gimpel family mobilized into an army uh two of the older kids were with Dvash and the, then with shiloh and these were cooking just the support that we got from the gimpels and from all of our neighbors all four of them and uh just it, it's been overwhelming and the truth is i didn't know if i was going to come on today but it, it feels like it's been longer than ever since we've seen each other. Although I really know it hasn't been, but I feel like it, uh, it feels that way because of the journey that I've been on. So I decided to come on, even though I was not sure how 
articulate or even coherent uh, my message would be, but we're family and we love each other. And I figured you'd prefer to hear from me, even if it didn't make any articulate sense, rather than uh, not, you know, being sort of afraid to open up and to share. So I'm going to try that. But because, you know, Jeremy reached out and asked me if I wanted to be on the fellowship. He said you would all understand if I wasn't ready. And because um, I'm not I'm, I'm not like in a place where I can reflect back on what has been happening. It feels like I'm still really in the thick of it. Um, but I did want to see all of you and connect. So anyways, uh, I thought I would share a little bit about the journey that I'm on, because this morning I realized that it's not a journey that I've, you know, like I said, like I've been on in the past tense. But it's a journey that I'm currently on, and it's it, there's a journey ahead of me. Because today was the first day since we arose from our Shiva. You know what the Shiva is? The Shiva, you know, uh, it's the first seven days of the most intense morning. And so I thought that today was supposed to be the first things are supposed to go back to normal, and that I would be sort of recovered and back to normal. I don't know why I thought that. Because, you know, while the laws of Shiva are in some ways very extreme, you know, you sit on the floor, you cover the mirrors in your home. You're not supposed to really bathe even, at least not long, hot, luxurious showers. It should be like a short, functional sort of tepid bathing. You're, you're mourning. You're, you're in grief. You stay in the same ripped clothing. I spent the entire week wearing that shirt that I was wearing when I burst into my parents' house and saw my father's body lying there without his soul within it. And I immediately just ripped my shirt over my heart and threw myself next to his body. You know, and I closed his eyes and I said, Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And since that faithful moment, faithful mo I've been wearing that shirt. And looking back, I'm realizing that I actually took comfort every morning when I put that shirt on. You know, I, I was sort of afraid I think of taking that shirt off because the shirt felt true. You know, this tear over my heart was an accurate reflection of what had happened inside, you know, like my heart just ripping in two. And the thought of taking the shirt off and putting another shirt on like a normal shirt was intimidating. Would I, would I be able to move on normally? And while I thought if I'm taking off the shirt, then I must be and on some level, perhaps. But this morning I went to lead prayers um, there's a number of different places I could lead here, but I'm, you know, either you're a prayer leader or you're not. And I haven't been leading prayers for many years. So I wanted to lead sort of with my brothers that I'm the feel the closest to. I mean, all of Israel are my brothers that I love, but you know, the shul of Rav Shlomo Katz and Efrat. So I, I went there to lead, uh, prayers that I plan on doing Bezrat Hashem for the next 11 months. I'll be leading prayers. You know, I lead the service and I say the Kaddish, the Kaddish prayer. But this morning, the first morning, I couldn't make it through the prayers without weeping, which is not easy to do when you're leading the service. You know, it's very vulnerable. It, I, I was really, really praying and hoping I would get through the service without breaking down crying. And I really did up until the final Kaddish. And then I just. But I suppose if it had to happen anywhere, at the end was better. But, uh, but fortunately, I was surrounded by these holy Jews like my brothers, whose love and patience and invisible embrace, you know, I felt comforting me. You know, in some ways, I actually felt like they came up to me afterwards and hugged me and 
I feel like they appreciated it. You know, sometimes it happens where you go to prayers or you say your your mantras and you sort of get into something where you're just sort of mumbling and tears are able to break through that. And I feel like perhaps I, I did that for them without even meaning to. But looking back, I think I went because I thought I'd feel normal, but uh, but I don't. It still feels like it's an amputation. And when I saw the words of the Kaddish, which we can talk about more in the future what the Kaddish is, because interestingly enough, while uh, it's the prayer said by mourners, it has nothing to do with death. It's only about life, but it's called the Kaddish Yatom, which literally means the Kaddish of orphans. And uh, while I know, I know that I'm a 43-year-old man with my own children and my mother is still alive, I think the word orphan in English is lacking. It shouldn't be that you're only an orphan if both of your parents are dead. Because if one of your parents is dead, you have one arm amputated. And both, then it's two arms. I don't know if it's like a really great translation. But on some level, even though I'm this grown man with children, I feel like I'm on some level like I'm an orphan. You know, I've been dreading this moment my whole life, and here it is. But I still find myself really overcome, overcome, almost crippled with gratitude. You know, rarely have I felt so grateful to so many people, so indebted to so many. And the outpouring of love had just been truly overwhelming. But the, I could talk about different parts of that gratitude another time. But the specific gratitude I want to tell you about is about my gratitude to Hashem and to the, the Torah and to the sages of Israel who have this transcendent wisdom and insight into the nature of the human condition to so beautifully design the laws of mourning. Because, you know, mourning, it, it's, a, it's a journey of discovery. It's a painful journey, but it's a very real, real journey. What did King Solomon say? I mean, sorry, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of celebration or a house of, you know, what's the word for mishte, Jeremy? whatever like a, a, a house a party. Of celebration a party yeah um so, and, and it's become clear why that's the case because it's so real and it causes you to really reflect and look look within within but i feel like because of the brilliance of these laws i'm emerging through this journey not only without scars and calluses around my heart but i feel like i'm uh, emerging already more sensitive and loving and grateful because you see when my father was getting sick, I thought perhaps the time had come that I should study the laws of mourning and be, be prepared for what felt inevitable. But I couldn't bring myself to do it. You know, while he's still alive, it just felt wrong. It felt like it would be a bad omen. You know, I was afraid to do it. And so, um, so I went into the mourning period having a general idea of the laws, but I wasn't fully ready and fully learned on the matter. And so after the first day of mourning at my sister's house in Modi'in, sitting on these low chairs and ripped clothing with my mother and my sisters by my side. And we were telling stories. We were hearing stories. We were laughing and we were crying and laughing and crying at the same time and having people from throughout the country and throughout the world coming to show their love and support. And yes, by the way, I even received some significant in-person fellowship Shiva visits, which meant the world to me. I mean, all of you, your messages, I really, I read them, I internalized them, I appreciated them. 
I haven't been able to understand, uh, respond as, as you can imagine, but uh, your message has meant the world to me and I'm so grateful for that. But you know, people were bringing us all of our meals. They cleaned the house. We weren't even supposed to get up to put the food that they made for us on our plates. They all did that. It was really overwhelming. But, but after the first day, I remember going upstairs and I was just spent. And I took out my phone just for a, a minute or two, just to zone out, you know, for a second. I turned on YouTube to watch whatever, like the last minute of an NBA game or something. And right then, at that moment, Shana sent me a link to review the laws of Shiva. And I clicked on it. And one of the first uh, laws that I, that I saw was that there should be no music, really no media. And so I turned off my phone. I deleted YouTube. I deleted Facebook. I turned off my phone. And I just laid there for a moment. And then I really burst out weeping. You know, not like when you're around people and you stifle it and you control it. But when you're alone, you can just let it flow. And I just, and it flowed. And afterwards, I felt even more healed. I felt like lighter. And I realized, oh, that's what these laws are about. They are brilliantly designed to allow us to actually experience the pain, you know, to ride that wave of grief, to allow it to go through us and to change us in the healthiest way possible, not to hide from it or deny it or repress it or drown it in alcohol or whatever. Not, no drugs, none of that stuff, none of the superficial runaway fleeing, you know, to embrace it and experience it fully. And I'll tell you, you know, I always took the mitzvah of attending and participating in funerals, which in Hebrew is the word levaya, which literally means escorting. A funeral means, it means in Hebrew, it's a levaya, which means escorting because we're escorting the deceased on their final journey to the next world. And I've always taken, you know, the laws to participate in it seriously. I've always taken the mitzvah to go to a shiva house seriously, but I didn't understand. I didn't understand just how important it was till I was on the other side of things, on the receiving side of things. The funeral was at 11 p.m. Saturday night, and I understand Jeremy played the, uh, my eulogy for my father, um, so a little bit of the story was there. But 11 p.m. was the soonest opportunity, and we didn't even know if we had 50 people there, and we had hundred, hundreds, and it was to me, it's just a miracle of God. I don't know how these people found out about it. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I was just my prayers. I was praying and praying, please let my father have a funeral that he deserves. You know, in my mind, in my reality, in my experience, my father was Malchut. He was like regal. He was just such a great man. And I wanted him to have that. And then just seeing all these people flock out and everyone that I saw there, I will forever be grateful to. Every person that came to the Shiva, I will forever be grateful to. It felt like the Shiva house, there was like, like a transference of energy that was happening. It's hard to explain. It's, it's as if everyone that came and sat down took just a little bit of our heartbreak and our grief from us and replaced it with comfort and love from them. You know, the time I most uh, felt this, the, I first sort of experienced that idea was when Jeremy and I went to the Shiva house not too long ago of a friend of ours whose daughter passed away in a horrible circumstance. I mean, horrible. And everybody sat there in the room with them in silence. The parents were in silence. The visitors were in silence. No one said a thing. There's nothing to say. But there was a transference of energy happening. I could feel it. I, you know, I left there with a little bit of their heartbreak 
in my heart. And I pray that a piece of the love that was in my heart was left there with them. You know, someone came to, Jeremy, do I have another two minutes? Yeah. So someone came to the Shabbat and they said they were just so sorry for the tragedy of um, my father's death. But the truth is that my father's death was not a tragedy at all. Like zero, zero percent tragedy. You know, have you ever, have you ever seen a, uh, you know, a, a Siddur, like a prayer book or a book of Psalms or a Bible that is so used and so worn that the pages are fragile. They're like tattered on the edges. They're like drenched in tears. And you look at that and you're like, what a fortunate Bible that is, that that is so the holiness, you can feel the holiness in it. It was well used. When I saw, when I saw my father's body, you know, lying there on the ground and I just saw he was just worn and bruised and swollen and broken. It was like that he squeezed every bit of life out of that body that was possible. And he, he was supposed to die early, you know, like he was, he got diabetes at the age of nine. He was supposed to make it, they say 30 years beyond onset, but we've had debates about this, but he wasn't supposed to make it past 40. We all agree about that. He made it to 71. He saw his children and his grandchildren living in the land of Israel, loving the land of Israel, following in the way, his ways, but the ways of our fathers for generations back to biblical times. That is not a tragedy. That is a celebration. Tragedy is what we, we spoke about last week with the D daughters. Tragedy is parents bearing their children. That's tragedy. Not what happened with my father. My father's life is a celebration. And while I grieve and it's very sad and I will miss him every moment of every day, it's not a tragedy. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that the pain is so intense and it's so real. And the truth is that while the most intense Shiva is over, the Shloshim, you know, the first 30 days of lesser but still very intense mourning is happening. That's what I just started today. No celebrations, no music, so much else. I'm not going to go into the laws, but after the first 30 days, that goes into the first 11 months. And then there's the different rules that are more lax in the, in the morning. But then the period of mourning ends and we can hopefully proceed in a healthy way, missing our loved ones, but you know, having them alive within us. And, uh, you know, just a few hours ago, my sister and I went up to the Kever, to his, where he was buried, as has been the custom for thousands of years when arising from the Shiva morning period. And it was very emotional, but it was beautiful. And we said the Psalms, beginning with the letters of his name, Mordechai Herschel, and uh, we were standing over his grave, blanketed in the earth of the land of Israel that he loved so much, and after our parting words, we recited the Psalms. And then we put the Israeli flag, which he was so proud of, uh, on the earth above him. Tabitha, if you have that picture, my sister just sent me the picture. Anyways, this will be the first Yom Ha'atzma'ut, Independence Day, without him. And that will be very difficult because this was a day that he loved so much. But uh, there will be lots of firsts. But, uh, but we move on together. And I just want to thank all of you for being not only um, friends, but family, not only friends, but family. And I'm so grateful for, uh, for all of you. You've held me up in more ways than you can imagine. Thank you, Jeremy, for being such a good friend to me. And, uh, and I'm actually not going to be able to stay on the entire time because I'm going to go by to the nearby village, which honestly I'm nervous about because there are all these Hasidim there. And I'm going to be the guy dressed in the farm pants, with the farm hat, and the farm thing. 
leading prayer service, and I have these two sidurim because I don't know if they dive in Ashkenaz or Sfard, so I'm bringing them both. And uh, and uh, please, God, my father's neshama will have an aliyah. All those uh, who have left the world, will, their neshamot will have an aliyah. And, and please, God, we'll have redemption coming soon. And we'll be able to experience the light, the great light that will shine into the world. So love you so much. Thank you so much. Shalom, shalom. Thank you so much, Ari. Thank you. Thank you for sharing with us and spending so much time with us. Um, you have no idea. It really means so much. I've already learned so much from you, watching you and your family go through this faith journey. Just listening to you now, it was like the commitment to the halakha, the commitment to the law, not understanding it, not really wanting it. You wanted to just escape and watch YouTube, not waiting to feel inspired to do the mitzvah, but just surrendering to Hashem's will. That is the Jewish wisdom. And then in that, you saw like, oh, that is Hashem's way. It's like helping you heal. That's just so incredible. So with you still with us, maybe we'll just have like a little tefillah together. Hashem, master of the world, thank you for today. Thank you for Ari. Thank you for bringing him back to us. Thank you for all that we have. Thank you. Help us take nothing for granted. Everything that we have is a gift. Everything can be taken away. Life is a gift. Thank you for all of our gifts. We've come here today as we do every week, committed. We want to live a committed life. Hashem, give us the strength to fight against the tides of this world, weakening our resolve. Help us live committed lives, committed to our wives, committed to our husbands, committed to our children, committed to our families, committed to our friends, committed to Israel, committed to you. Bless everyone in this fellowship. Bless them, bless their families, bless their loved ones. Help us grow into who you created us to be. And as we grow and rise up, we lift up our loved ones around us. Help us shine your light in the world as you shine your light through us in our lives. Shine a new light on Zion and let us see Jerusalem rebuilt in our days. Amen. Amen. All right, my friends. Home, I want to, yeah, bye, Ari. We love you. Tehila is uh, reading a book now about Janusz Korczyk. It's an incredible story of a Jewish-Polish doctor who became the head of an orphanage and took care of so many Jewish children before and during the war. And although he could have escaped and his dream was to move to Israel, he chose to stay with his children and literally walked with them all the way into the gas chambers. It's such a powerful story. It's such a well-written book. I've learned so much about the Holocaust from this book that I didn't know. And just as we were preparing for Yom HaShoah, for Holocaust Memorial Day, you know, Tehillah was giving me the cliff notes and teaching me all the different things that she had learned. And, you know, how many Jewish children lived in Poland before the Nazis came to power? Does anyone know? I didn't know. One million Jewish children lived in Poland. Do you know how many survived? And I've asked almost everyone, like during last week, I asked everyone this question. And almost everyone said, 20,000 50,000 out of a million, a million Jewish children, 50,000. That's fair enough. And the answer is only 5,000 Jewish children. The Nazis hunted down and murdered 995,000 Jewish children. That alone needs to have its own day. There's Yom HaShoah, and then there's just the Jewish children of Poland. And it was so eerie. It was so weird. On Yom HaShoah, I had a small group of German tourists 
come to the farm, or it was the day after Yom HaShoah, but I was still in the mindset. And um, I asked the Germans that were there, I said, do you know how many Jewish children were in Poland before the war? And they didn't know. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't expect them to know. And I told them one million. And I said, well, how many do you think survived? And then one of the German men there said, hmm, 1,000. And it was so uh, chilling because he was a German <laughs> and he knew they are going to get the job done. When we had German volunteers come out there and they picked our olive trees to make olive oil during Shemitah, we looked through all of the olive trees. There wasn't one olive left on those trees. And Hashem took such an excellent people, such an exacting people, such an exceptional people, and turned their hearts against Israel and like unleashed this beast. And they were so methodical, just chilling. And that German person who came to visit the farm who was a lover of Israel. He, he knew, he knew that if the Germans were unleashed on the world, they would go after every single child if that's what they thought was the right thing to do. And this Shabbat, we had our first singles retreat on the farm. It was geared toward religious Jewish young men and women after the army. And it was run by an organization called Pnima, which means inward. And I couldn't help but see the spice cart. Here we are in the mountains of Judea. We had lost so many. And now our farm is like slowly but surely helping young men and young women through these spiritual retreats, meet each other and build new homes, rebuild our nation in the land. And, you know, this is the land of Israel fellowship. And you all know that Ari and I love the land of Israel. And I realized that for me, I'm a hammer, so everything is a nail. But when I read the Bible and I look at Israel today and I analyze, okay, all that's going on, the war in the Ukraine, the Biden administration, the Hamas, the Hezbollah, the PLO, the right wing, the left wing, the judicial reform, all of the things that are happening, what needs to be done? You know, what, if I have one arrow that I can like shoot, what do I aim at? And for me, every time I come to the same answer, settle the land of Israel. What does the right and left actually mean in Israel? It all ultimately revolves around the idea of, will we surrender the land? Will we divide the land, kick the Jews out of Judea, and create another terror state in the heartland of Israel, making Israel only nine miles wide? Settle the land, just do it. End the debate, create the reality, enter into the promise. Enter into the promised land, and God will show us wonders. Just have faith and courage and go into the frontier. And so I want to show you our newest mission in the land of Israel that was birthed from the Arugot farm, and that is now the next farm in Judea. I can't show you the map because it's a little bit of a sensitive time in Israel right now, but I will show you pictures. This is a picture of the encampment from pretty far away. Check this out. If you look down in the valley right there, I hope you can see it. There's a couple of little like tents, a couple of little like sort of makeshift homes. There's a flock of sheep there. Let's show the tent now. Just the tent from like eye, bird's eye view. That's the tent. In that tent, we have sheep. And in that tent, we have our boys that grew up on our farm. So half the tent is their living quarters. They're literally living with the sheep. And on the other half of the tent is the sheep. Let's show the inside of the tent. There you go. Now we're like inside our tent. There are the sheep. And our boys are sleeping on the other side, like inside the tent, just if I were to turn around 180 degrees, there I am. That's the living quarters. You see those boys there? Please keep that picture up on the screen for a second. Now, there's the guy that looks like an American with a baseball hat in the middle. Okay, that's me. But uh, take me out of the picture. If you ever wanted to imagine, 
you know, David's men were like kind of misfits, d- 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 kind of outskirts of society. They didn't really fit in. They weren't going to sit in a frontal lecture in schools for eight hours a day. They were going to kind of settle the land of Israel and join the king in the mountains. What did David's men look like? Look at those pictures there. If you wanted a picture from the Bible of what those people looked like, right there is my imagination of exactly a depiction of what David's mighty men look like. And so um, one of them is married and one of them has a baby, married with, a, with a, a wife and a baby. And there's a whole team of boys that are supporting them. And that picture that you just saw, if we go up, that's, that's where we're headed. If you see that last picture, that mountaintop over there into the promised land, beyond the edge of Jewish settlement in the land of Israel. And from that mountaintop, on, with, if you like look into the distance, you would actually be able to see the Arugot farm. So we are now expanding our borders, settling in the land. And you know, just as we're sort of reeling from Holocaust Memorial Day, and we're sort of like getting prepared for Israel's Memorial Day, it's like, what can we do? Settle the land of Israel. Go out into the frontier, have faith, have courage, and go into the land. And as we enter into the land, we, we really, we become who we need to be. The land molds us into who we need to be. Just like certain plants grow really well in the rainforest, and some plants grow really well in the desert. Do you know where Jews really grow into who they need to be? In Judea. And maybe that's why the world wants to kick the Jews out of Judea, that God forbid the Jew emerges into the world as he should, but that's exactly what we're doing. And so with that, I want to bring some Torah from Judea. And so we have our scholar in residence, Tehillah Gimpel, with us today. And as usual, her insights are brilliant, and I'm sure you will absolutely love to hear from her. So from settling the land of Israel to teaching the Torah of Israel, here is the best and the brightest in the Land of Israel Fellowship. Here's Tehillah for you guys. Hi guys, I hope everyone's doing well. This week I want to talk about the portions that we read on the Shabbat, and specifically the second portion we read on Shabbat of Mitzorah. This past uh, Shabbat we got to double dip with two portions, and uh, I want to try to see if there's something for us to connect here with Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israel's Independence Day that's coming up. So, you know, this past week we read these two uh, you know, sections that have a lot of leprosy talk. In the portion of Tezbiya, we learned that you can get leprosy on your body and on your clothing. It's not really leprosy. That's just like a loose translation that we use into English. We don't know exactly how to define this disease, but the Torah sends you away if you have this you know, leprosy, and then you leave the encampment, and there's this process of sacrifices and purification. And then in you know 14, chapter 14, verse 32, it says, okay, this is the law of those, you know, of how you make the sacrifices. If you're you know poor, you can bring the lesser sacrifice, and the high priest purifies you, okay. And you know, what we see in the portion is that leprosy doesn't, this, you know, I say leprosy, doesn't seem to be like a physical disease or primarily a physical disease because you don't go to the doctor for it. Yeah, you know, you, you have, you go to the, to the Kohen. That means that there's a spiritual cause here. And the sages teach us that the primary cause for this tzarat, for this leprosy, is lashon hara, gossiping, evil words, slandering another person. We see it hinted to in the fact that Miriam herself suffered from this kind of leprosy after speaking about Moshe. But then when we finish, you know, this purification process, it's mostly in Parshat Tazria, and then we, we seem to get to a change of subject in, 
you know, in chapter 14, verse 33, it says that Hashem speaks to Moshe and Aaron. It says, when you come to the land of Canaan that I'm going to give you as a possession, it's like, great, okay, this sounds good, new subject. What are we going to talk about now? What is the good news Hashem is going to give us about coming to the land? And then it says, and I will place a lesion of tzara'at, of this kind of leprosy, upon a house in your possession. The one who has the house goes and tells the Kohen. And then, you know, it explains what happens. The Kohen clears out all the property from the house. And then, and then you know, no one actually becomes impure even, per se. But they lock up the house and they see if it goes away. And if not, then they dismantle a few stones. And then they see if it goes away. And if not, eventually you get to a situation where the whole house is demolished. Now, this raises a lot of questions. Like, why is the issue of house leprosy separated from all the rest it would seem like it should just be one section like this is your body this is your clothes your house and like if you get that then do this that or the other and you'll be cured it seems like a new subject but it's kind of the same subject and it even has a different torah portion like why is it all in one torah portion but then furthermore why does it start with saying that this is connected to coming to the land like the verse says, like, you're going to come to the land of Israel. It sounds so festive. But the, then the verse tells us it's like you're going to come to the land. You're going to have these horrible lesions on your house. Right? And we know, and we see this in Miriam, that this is like a spiritual sickness. The spiritual sickness can happen in the desert. Right? Miriam got sick in the desert. So why does specifically the leprosy of the house only happen in the land? What is it related to the land of Israel? So the Midrash says that it's actually separate because it has a different spiritual cause. While this sarat, leprosy of the body and the clothing, are here for lashon hara, for evil, evil, you know, gossip, use, you know, har saying horrible words about another person, slandering them, leprosy of the home is for an entirely different reason. It's a reason that in Hebrew is called sarut ayin, like miserliness, being cheap, not sharing with others with an open heart and an open hand. The Midrash illustrates it very humorously. It says that this would happen to a person that wouldn't share things with their neighbors. It says, like, imagine, okay, like, let's say there's this family uh, and someone knocks on their door and they're like, oh, can I borrow some barley? And then you say, oh, you know, mm, I wish I could, but I just used my last cup of barley and my cholent. Ugh, better luck next time. And then a different neighbor stops by and says, like, oh, do you have a few dates I could borrow on my last few dates? And you say, oh, I wish I could help you, but, you know, my cat is allergic to dates. I don't keep any cats in the house. I don't keep any dates in the house. So the Midrash says that the punishment is so fitting because what does the Kohen do? He says this is something, the Midrash says this is something that comes on the house of a person that wasn't sharing. So imagine what the punishment is. The Kohen starts clearing out like boxes and boxes of their stuff out into the front yard and somebody, suddenly the neighbor passes by and says, oh, no dates, huh? And the other neighbor passes by and they're like eyeing the box and like, hmm, no barley, it was all in the chillin', huh? And then this like humiliating process where your greediness and selfishness is kind of held up for everyone else to see, but mostly for themselves to see and kind of like own up to it. It's this kind of mirror that's held up to them. And so the Torah here is giving them this gradual process. It's like a chance, like that mirror of iniquity is held up on our faces to allow ourselves to work on ourselves. Maybe it'll pass. So the Torah gives you some time. But if you don't get the message, it's like more drastic steps. The grand, like the gradual dismantling of your home is what happens if you don't get the message and straighten out your attitude. Like if you don't know how to give to others, maybe you don't deserve to have all the abundance that you have. If you don't have like generosity, then like literally and figuratively, you don't really deserve the gifts that Hashem has given you. And so it will be dismantled from you, it will be taken away from you and eventually demolished. And you know, so it explains why 
the approach here is different. Like with the body and the clothing leprosy, you have to go away from everyone. But in the house leprosy, you don't even become ritually impure. And that kind of makes sense if you understand that it has a different reason. Because while speaking Lashon Hara, slandering somebody is an obvious sin, being miserly is not actually a sin. Like you have certain boxes that you need to tick off of how much charity you need to give. But even if you do that, like you follow all the Torah rules about you know giving to the poor, a tenth and tithing and properly and doing everything, you can still be kind of a jerk. Being miserly is like a midah. It's a trait that you need to work on inside of yourself. It's about sharing even when you're not commanded to share. So how is this connected to the land of Israel? What Was it not important to share in the desert, like when people are living in tents? Well, you know, the what is what is happening here that the Kliakar has a great expl- explanation that he gives for this. He says that the constant test of having, of possessing the land of Israel is the test of living with abundance and still not forgetting Hashem. Like the constant trial that we're going through is to recognize that Hashem gives us everything and it's not from our own strength. Like in Devarim, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it says that our big problem is going to be lest you eat and be and be satisfied and build good houses and dwell within. Your heart is going to grow haughty and forget the Lord your God and you're going to say to yourself, my strength and the might of my hand has accumulated this wealth for me. So it's for that reason, you know, that we need to be extra careful in the land of Israel. It's for that reason, you know, it's like Hashem, we're taught that Hashem doesn't give us a Nile, doesn't give us like a river that provides water for the land of Israel, but we're always dependent on rain because the challenge of living in the land is not if we can be good in bad times, but if we could be good in good times. Mm-hmm. You know, I just finished reading a book called A Light in the Darkness about Janusz Korczak, and the book talks about the unbelievable generosity of spirit that people had in the ghettos during the Holocaust trying to save one another. You know, Janusz Korczak, he barely was standing. He was old and sick and starving, and he would go to the end of the earth in the sacrifices he made to provide food for the orphans in his orphanage. Like, generosity in the good times? Check. But what about, excuse me, generosity in the bad times, check. But what happens in the good times? You begin to think the things that you have are actually yours. And you can even say to yourself, I'm the one Hashem gave these things to, you know, so I must deserve them. But no, Hashem tells you having abundance is not just a gift, it's a responsibility. You are chosen to have everything you have, not because you're so worthy of possessing it, but because Hashem knew that you'd be the right steward for that, to be able to properly use it for good and to share with others. And so this Parsha is maybe not coincidentally juxtaposed to Yom Ha'atzmaut, to Israel's Independence Day, because we look around and celebrate this huge milestone of 75 years of living in the land. We can see how Israel went from this place of so much lacking, so much poverty, just a band of refugees, literally skin and bones, rising out of the Holocaust to build a country where we have just so much blessing. But the challenge is always, just like in the Torah portion, if you want to keep that gift, if you want to keep that home, you need to remember that it always came from Hashem. Remembering where it came from expresses in an open, it expresses itself in an open heart to give to those around you. Now, Israel has been blessed not only with physical abundance and agriculture, science and technology and all of that, but also, and maybe even more importantly, in spiritual abundance. More people learn Torah in Israel than ever in Jewish history. But are we going to choose to be a light to others? Are we going to keep all of that to ourselves? Or do we share it with the world? Are we going to shine the light of Torah you know, forth from Zion in a way that shows that we recognize that both the physical and the spiritual that Hashem has given us in the land is because He chose us to be the stewards of that, that can share that with the world. 
you see this idea really illustrated also in the Haftorah, the process that Hashem wants us to go through. In the second book of Kings, chapter 7, we read about these four lepers sitting outside of the city. And it's a time where the Arameans have basically choked off Samaria from all sources of food and basically are starving them. And it's at that point, people are, God forbid, you know, I mean, not, it's happening. People are eating their children. And the king, King Yoram, is, is, is portrayed as being completely helpless and passive and, you know, incompetent. And it is at that point that Elisha the prophet prophesizes that Hashem is going to save everyone and create tremendous abundance. He promises that food is going to become so inexpensive. Like people that hear him just scoff. The guard hears him and scoffs. No one believes him. No one takes him seriously. We're starving. And these four lepers are sitting outside and they say to themselves, look, we're going to starve. No point of staying here. Let's throw ourselves at the mercy of the Arameans. They'll probably kill us, but that's better than starving to death. And who knows, maybe they'll actually have you know, like a 1% chance. Maybe they'll have mercy on us and, and, and take us in and feed us. So they go to the Aramean encampment and they find it abandoned. But what they don't know is that Hashem made this miracle and the Arameans heard sounds of soldiers and thought that maybe the, the, the king of Israel had hired mercenaries to come and fight them. So they fled. They left everything behind and ran away. But these lepers come and they see tents packed with like food and goodies and 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 animals and they start like squirreling away little stockpiles of food they go out to the wilderness bury something in a hole and come back and take more and they're burying and they're going back and burying but then they have this change of heart in verse 9 they say wait this is good news but we're keeping it quiet to ourselves we don't want to incur guilt like why are we allowing others to starve let's go back and relate this to the king so that everyone can come and enjoy this abundance and it's like an amazing process because it's like hinting to us that this is what it's about. They start out selfish. They want to keep everything to themselves, but they transform. Look at the kind of people they started as. But then while they're eating, they realize it's not really theirs and open their heart to share the good news. And it was from that abundance that they essentially saved all of the city, I mean, all of Samaria from starvation. Now, if Hashem would have wanted to provide for Samaria, it could have just dropped food like manna from the heavens. There's a million ways Hashem could have fed everybody. But it's like Hashem wanted it to unfold in a way that you see internal transformation of people first before the physical redemption comes. It's like through working on our own midot and our own generosity, Hashem says that is what is going to bring salvation. So Hashem could make all our problems here in Israel go away in an instant, but he's not just seeking solutions, he's seeking our hearts. He wants us to work on ourselves, not just to follow the mitzvahs, but to go beyond the mitzvahs, to change our traits, to, to go to, to have a posture of responsibility for those around us and for those all over the world to bring what we have, realize that it's from Hashem and bring that to others. So it's like Hashem is hinting to us through the Torah portion and through the Haft Torah that our blessings and our final redemption are not just going to, you know, plop down on us, but the secret to achieving them is doing the inner work that's required of us keeping the Torah, but then going beyond the Torah and realizing and living in that state of mind of knowing that what we have is from Hashem. And as things are from Hashem, it is our responsibility, not just our privilege, but our responsibility to reach out to others that might have less, both physically and spiritually, and share that abundance with everyone. So with that, I wish you guys a beautiful week and happy a happy Israel Independence Day. Bye, guys. Thank you, Tehila. Thank you. And, you know, here we're learning, you know, leprosy is known as the consequence. It's a consequence for speaking Lashon Hara. And so to counter that, what I want to do is I want to read one of the, one of the most beautiful things that I read all of Yom HaShoah. I want to share an article that a fellowship member here wrote. 
And it's the opposite of evil speech. It's good words. It's inspiring words. It's an incredible story about her family during the Holocaust. And this story was published in different papers and websites all around the world. And while we're learning about evil speech, here are words that are radiating blessing around the world. It was written by our very own Bridget in the fellowship. So thank you for allowing me to share this story of your grandmother. And so um, this is highlights from the article. And I would encourage all of you uh, to read the whole thing, but I get most of it in here. So here we go. At the time of the Second World War, Romania was initially one of Germany's allies. Ion Antonescu, the then prime minister and marshal of Romania, established a military dictatorship from 1940 and also entered into a military alliance with Hitler, from which he expected material and personal support in building up the Romanian army. As a consequence, Hitler sent a German military mission to Romania, which led to the stationing of many German military personnel in Transylvania, which had been a part of Romania since 1918. Antonescu's policies were also marked by radical anti-Semitism, and during his reign, hundreds of thousands of Romanian Jews fell victim to the Holocaust through massacres and in labor camps. My grandmother belonged to the influential family of the former mayor of Kradstadt, Brasov City in Transylvania. Dr. Carl Ernst Schnell, and due to their factories and wealth, the family not only had political but also economic influence. My grandmother's house in Castle Street was always a social meeting place and center. It remained so even during the period when German troops were stationed there. Since Transylvania had belonged to the Hansburg monarchy for centuries and was only annexed to Romania after the end of World War I, my grandparents were both born as Austrian citizens in Transylvania and had studied in Austria and Germany. German officers stationed in Kronstadt were happy to meet German culture and speak German to my grandparents in my grandparents' house the secret. What the German military did not know was that my grandmother had Jewish friends and that she was not ready to give them up. When she realized how threatening and the, the persecution of the Jews was becoming, even in her environment and what fate awaited Jews, she acted. In a great hurry, because every day of delay could mean the deportation of her friends, she had a hidden room in the cellar of her house separated, which was closed with a door hidden by a shelf. Then piece by piece, she brought their small-scale furniture, folding beds, mattresses, blankets, dishes, clothes, and every other necessity. Fortunately, in the big house, it was not noticed. When everything was ready, she brought her friends there. Somehow, she managed to do all of this in a way that no one but she knew about it. And from then on, she took care of the Jewish family in secret. What fears accompanied her in this? I do not know. She never spoke about it. Of course, she was aware of the danger she was putting herself and her whole family in, but it seemed natural to her to be there for her Jewish friends, even if, and more so because, they were being persecuted and were in danger. Thus, she led a double life. Outwardly, a lady of society, mother of small children, and hostess to many, and in secret, someone who used her strength and creativity to protect her friends. While in the salon of the German officers, kissed the hand of the lady of the house and praised in the guest book her wonderful hospitality, during which they forgot the war business, down in the cellar her Jewish friends were waiting for her to come to them, as she did every night, and provide them with food, news, reading material, and all necessities. Although, or perhaps because there was a regular flow of German military personnel in and out of the house. No one suspected anything. Even the fact that more food was consumed was not noticed among the numerous guests. The Jewish family was not discovered and survived. What a blessing. But this is only the first part of the story, the great turning point. 
1944, everything changed. The defeat of the German Empire became apparent. And on August 23rd, Romania's King Michael ended the military dictatorship of Ian Antonescu and the military alliance with the German Empire. Romania changed sides in the middle of the war and fought for the Allies. And then on the Soviet army marched in. With the fall of Antonescu, the systematic persecution of the Jews also ended. Despite having switched side in the fall of 1944, Stalin demanded reparations from Romania for the reconstruction of the Soviet Union as compensation for the former alliance with Germany. In the form of 100,000 voluntary workers, the focus was particularly on members of the German minority in Transylvania. Starting in January 1945, Germans capable of work were removed by the Russian and Romanian military and deported in cattle corps for forced labor. The entrances to the village were closed off by the military and police. Telephone, telegraph, and railroad traffic was interrupted, and mixed Romanian-Soviet patrols went from house to house with prepared lists for the collection. Mostly this happened at night. Within an hour, the people concerned were supposed to get ready and leave without knowing where they were going or how long they would be gone. Only one piece of luggage was allowed. No consideration was given to those left behind during the collection, even if there were children who were left parentless. My grandparents were both part of the German minority. My grandfather was still at the, fr at the front at that time. My grandmother was 28 years old with her three small children, six, two, and just over one years old in Kratzstadt. Every night meant fear. Every day was just a reprieve. And then one night the military was at her door and she too had to pack her suitcase. She was also doing something else at that same time. She sent Hunga her Hungarian maid to those Jewish friends who had been living in freedom against, again since Romania's change of sides. Within a very short time, her Jewish friends appeared. He spoke to the Romanian and Russian military men and told them how my grandmother had saved his family's life and how she had taken care of them for years. What words he found to convince them, only he knows. But he managed to get my grandmother off the list. She would not be deported. Although she and her family lost all their possessions and the expropriations carried out by the Romanian communists, in the following years, they were forced to live in a tiny backyard apartment. They themselves remained unharmed, and their three children did not have to grow up parentless. What a blessing. Blessed be everyone who blesses you, people of Israel. The Jewish family immigrated to Israel shortly thereafter, and direct contact between them was broke off. But there was a blessing at work that continued for long after. In the years of shortage that followed in Romania, meat was available only to special circles, for example, members of the Communist Party. Another special group that also received allocations of meat were the survivors of the Jewish community in Brasov. And these regularly provided my grandmother, as long as she lived in Romania, with this beef. She prepared and invited her children and grandchildren to a monthly meal whose real hosts were her Jewish friends. This is how I grew up, and this is how we experience the truth of the verse. I will bless those who bless Israel in a very practical way. I am well aware that there are other stories where the blessing was not so immediately seen, but I am convinced that God gave his blessing in these cases as well, even if it became recognizable only later. God's calling to bless the people of Israel remains. The question is whether we are willing to respond with, Hineni, here I am. And so... That's the story, the legacy of Harold and Bridget here in our fellowship. And that story is just so beautiful. And at the same time, um, two rabbis came to Israel and they shared another story that was so touching. It really like touched on the heart of that same story. And it was a story of two Jewish men, a young lad and an older Jewish man. 
And the story is told to Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg in Florida. He gave over this story. And he met now this elderly man who was the young lad who was on a cattle cart to Auschwitz. And he asked the rabbi, you want to know how I survived? And the rabbi said, yes, of course. And he says, well, the trains to Auschwitz, sometimes it would they'd be all night. It'd be days at a time. And at nighttime, if we didn't make it to the destination, they would just stop the train on the rails and just wait for the sun to come up. And they would leave us in the cattle cars. And the sun went down and it was freezing. And everyone was just in so much pain. It was so cold. And he was a young man at the time. And he saw an older man from his village, an old man that he loved. And he saw the old man was really shaking. And he ran over to that old man and looked at him and says, don't worry, I'm here. And that whole night with his arms, he was like rubbing the old man, trying to get his blood flowing, keeping him warm, rubbing his back, rubbing his arms, keeping him all night. And he said, after a few hours, the man was still just chattering, shaking. It wasn't good. And his arms were so much in pain. You could only imagine after doing that for a few hours, your arms literally want to fall off. They're burning. And he just kept on going and kept on going and kept on going. And finally, after they made it through the entire dark, chilling night, the sun finally came up over the horizon and a little bit of the rays of the sun started to bring a little bit of heat. And the young man looked around and he saw that everyone in the cattle car was dead. Everyone froze to death that night. The only two people that survived were the old man that he kept warm and he survived because he worked to keep that old man alive. And so often it's like when we give and when we help the other, in helping that old man, that was his story of how he survived. And the blessings of blessing Israel, the blessings of being a blessing to others, there is a reality that light that you send out will be reflected back at you. And so the courage of that grandmother who was just in her 20s with three young children, it's just so remarkable. It would have been so easy to just go with the flow and to do that and then to be blessed afterwards, to be saved by that Jewish family, to be fed then for saving that Jewish family. It's just a testimony. And it is a guide for all of us that when hard times come to live a committed life, because it is through our commitment to the good that good not only comes into the world, but comes into our own lives. And, you know, we're talking about evil speech. And, you know, we all know that our speech is, is a creative force. And the Torah portion tells us just last week, the worst thing happens to Aaron. And instead of speaking, he chooses to be silent. If you look at Leviticus chapter 10, verses two and four, Nadav and Avihu are killed. And the verses go like this. So fire went out from the Lord. We have a slide for it, if we could put it up on the screen. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those closest to me, I am sanctified. And Aaron stood silent. And so when you look at that verse, I always understood that verse my whole life as it was a comfort to Aaron. With those closest to me, I'm sanctified. I'm sanctified. Moses was telling his brother Aaron, Nadav and Avim, they were the holiest. They were the closest to God. He took them. It's okay. Be, be comforted knowing that 
God is sanctified through those that are closest to him. And it was comforting Aaron saying how wonderful his children were. But that night after um, we had that night with Rav Ephraim Goldberg and with Rav Shlomo Katz, Rav Shlomo shared this beautiful teaching from the Rashbam, from Rashi's grandson. And he brings a totally different understanding to that verse. And what can I say? I think it's everything is true, but perhaps this may even be more in line with the pshat, with the natural meaning of the text. Bekrovai ekadesh, the verse reads, by those closest to me, I am sanctified. And among all the nation, I will be honored. In hard times, when things that shouldn't happen, happen. When you choose the good, when you choose emunah, when you choose faith, when the evidence is unclear, when you stay close to me, when you rationally maybe shouldn't, that's when I'm sanctified. Aaron, you have every right to pull away, but stay close now. Moses is telling him, when you stay close, when times are hard, that's the greatest kiddush Hashem. That's the greatest sanctification of Hashem. And what does Aaron do? He responds, silence. Okay, I'll stay close. I won't throw a hissy fit. I won't quit. I'll just stand like a man. And that is what covenantal living is. And we have to know that the world is not an easy place to live. It never has been. Bezrat Hashem. Um, it will be one day. But right now, it's a boxing ring that you have to be tough. You have to be a warrior of the king. And Rav Soloveitchik says, commitment, covenant, that's the power of being a Jew in the world. That's the power of living by the Torah in the world. Modern Western spirituality lacks that power. There can be high moments, but then they might fade away. The Torah is a covenant. The covenant demands commitment. That commitment to practice, to do the law, to do the mitzvah, creates a bond and forges a spirit that can't be broken. Empires come and empires go and the Jewish people will continue to wake up and pray the morning prayers and daven shachari every day. When it's cold, when they're uninspired, when they don't want to, the commitment is the bond, not the spirituality. And Jewish spiritual highs, you know, you know, I know a lot of people that had a spiritual encounter and it changed their life. An encounter with God, a transcendent moment, sometimes caused by external stimuli, sometimes by a dream, sometimes in prayer, sometimes at a concert. But the path of Torah is different. Jewish spiritual highs don't create the bond with God. Their covenant and commitment to God creates their spiritual highs. The commitment to the mitzvah creates the healing. When it's hard, those closest to me, stay close, stay connected, stay committed. And then all the nation will see the glory of Hashem through the commitment in the covenant that Am Yisrael lives by. And so when I think about that, and we're coming up onto 75 years of the land of Israel, you know, what do we need this Yom Ha'atzma'ut? What are we looking for now? We have 75 years in the land of Israel. And I was asked just this last week by one of the most important rabbis in Manhattan, who's out there reaching all of the lost Jews in Wall Street and bringing them in. And he said, you know, well, what would you tell me, rabbi in Manhattan? How do I bring the light to the Jews of Manhattan? And I would say, well, I don't know what to say about the Jews of Manhattan, but I, I think it's true for everyone around the world. What we need is a little more Hashem in our lives. Let's bring God a little more into our lives. The news keeps talking about politics. I never hear God in the media. So maybe we need a little 
break from the mainstream media. Maybe we should be getting less information from the outside and looking for more guidance that comes from the inside. We have decisions to make. Pray on them. Ask God for guidance. Prayer is not only talking and asking, but also listening, opening yourself up to listen, to receive guidance, inviting Hashem into our lives, inviting Hashem to celebrate the 75th year of independence with us. People have traded in God for politics. They've traded real friends for social media, Facebook friends. They've trans traded pornography for intimacy, trading away their children for careers, trading away natural food for processed chemical food. They've traded a life where God is a living presence in their lives for some rigid half-truth ideology or religion or philosophy. And that goes to both atheists and religionists, a little less head and a little bit more heart. It's time to do tshuva to return to the source, to return to Hashem, to return to the natural, a little more God in our lives, a little more family, a little more healthy, a little more real friends, a little more real love and light. And on the week that we learn about Lashon HaRa, we need to practice a little bit more pure speech. What is pure speech? You know, I believe that's what Abraham practiced. When people came into his home, he didn't have a Torah to teach them. He couldn't open up the Talmud. He didn't have a Torah yet. Moses was hundreds of years later. Abraham spoke to his guests. We have a lot of spirits within us and many names to those spirits. Nefesh, Ruach, Chaya, Yechida, Neshama, Nefesh, Behemid, Nefesh, Elohid, the ego, the id, the shadow. We have anger and pain and scars and trauma. And there's all different things that are inside us. Abraham spoke from the highest place within him to the highest place within the other. That's what brought them under the wings of the Shekhinah into the presence of the divine. That's my religion. That's my practice to maintain the highest place within me and speak to others from that place and talk to the highest place within them. Help bring that out in them. Help them grow that part of who they are. Bring that out into the world. That's the path to the divine presence. That's the path that will bring blessing into our lives and into the lives of our loved ones. And so this Yom move, let us open our hearts up and invite Hashem in. And let it be a political day but be a spiritual day, a godly day. And we realize that every day for thousands of years, we've prayed, Hashem, raise the flag and ingather our exiles. And let us have the courage to believe that when we see the flag of Israel flying over Jerusalem, that Hashem has answered our prayers and he's gathering us under that flag that we should celebrate this Yom Ha'atzmaut not as a political holiday, as a spiritual holiday with the living God of Israel. And so from the depths of my heart, I want to bless all of you for this, for coming to this fellowship, for spending this time together. You are such a blessing to me, such a blessing to Ari, and I want to bless you from this place. Isa Adonai Panabe Lecha, Veyasem Lecha Shalom. Shalom, my friends. Thank you all so much. Have a beautiful, beautiful week. We will see you again soon. Shalom. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.